So it was a way of providing minimal amounts of protein and amino acids to the cell so that it could keep functioning when nature wasn't providing it with a healthy amount. So this, this process, which we inherited, now has not only the function of helping us through uh, hunger, um, periods of deprivation, of starvation, of the feast and famine, and you know, this was necessary throughout 99% of human history. Do you want to know what it is? Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Welcome to the Body, Mind and Power Run podcast. I'm your host, Seamland, and our guest today is James Clement. James is a lawyer and entrepreneur turned research scientist who works on life extension. He's best known for his 2010 Super Centenarian research study and was the world's 12th person to have his whole genome sequenced. James, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Seam. Yeah, and uh, um, uh, we we mentioned uh, before we started the podcast that we have like a lot of similar understandings about uh, lifespan extension and uh, general health. So I'm c- quite uh, fascinated to uh, talk with you and share these I- ideas. Uh, but before we do that, uh, how did you transition from you know being a lawyer into life extension research? Well, I was uh, kind of a science nerd when I was younger um, in college. Uh, a dual major, political science and psychology, and I spent about 3,000 hours working for a neurophysiologist, um, and that got published in um, Science uh, in my junior year of college. But because of the political situation, war in Vietnam, Nixon's uh, Watergate, and all of that kind of stuff, I decided to become a lawyer. Um, but in my third year of law school, a seminal anti-aging book written by Dirk Pearson and Sandy Shaw called Life Extension, a practical scientific approach came out. It was 900 pages of anti-aging science. And not all of it viewed as correct these days, but in its day, it was really the cutting edge of what was known about anti-aging. And I was absolutely hooked. And I started reading molecular biology textbooks and delving into the science. Um, And then in the early 2000s, um, Aubrey de Grey, a PhD from Cambridge, um, started the SINS organization and started putting on scientific conferences. And I attended those and started going to other scientific conferences on metabolism and stem cells and uh, general aging, and eventually decided I wanted to get into this field myself completely and to become a a biogerontologist, someone who studies the biology of aging. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, did you get like a degree or are you just like uh, self-educated? Self-educated. Over the past... uh, Nine years, I've read over 18,000 papers, and um, I actually uh, made friends with uh, George Church. I was uh, on the board of directors of one of the companies he founded, uh, the first direct-to-consumer genetics company called Gnome, and um, 
uh, when I had my whole genome sequenced in 2009, he was actually the geneticist who read my interpretation to me. Hmm. Um, so we became friends and talked a lot about anti-aging and what I could do um, to help the, uh, the field and decided on the Supercentenarian Project, which I'm still involved with, but which really consumed um, three or four years of my life going around North America and Europe, collecting blood samples from people that were essentially 110 years and older, but we, we broadened it. So we also took their relatives and lowered the age to about 106 so we could get more men into the study. Um, and eventually we collected uh, samples from about 60 um, of this age group, 106 to about 112. Whole genome sequenced them, and then in 2017 gave those uh, genome sequences database um, to researchers around the world for free. And um, there was a really great write-up about the study in 2017 by Amy Harmon. Uh, journalist for the New York Times, and we got about 12 major universities collaborating with us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, pretty pretty awesome to see that uh, people are actually doing like extensive research about it because yeah, like usually uh, it's very hard to do this, like especially like super centenarian studies and uh, assessing people's. Uh, lifespan because you know they require a lot of time and uh, a lot of like attention to detail absolutely and there's some really great scientists that work in this field and i i definitely um was inspired by near barzilai tom pearls and Stuart kim's work uh and when i met these people in person um you know roughly 60 people between the ages of, of 106 and 112 I was completely blown away by how healthy some of them were um, at the time I was meeting them. So lots of men that were 108, 109, who were living alone, uh, still cooking their own meals, um, mm. either taking mass transit or driving themselves if they um, <laughs> you know, had great eyesight, and um, living a pretty normal life. One gentleman, um, that I met had just returned from a uh, 800 or, or more round trip uh, that he took in his um, Mercedes sports car by himself at 109 years, years of age. <laughs> wow. So um, just totally breaks all of the images people have of what it means to be old you know, these were not individuals that were wheelchair bound in nursing homes and having to be forced, you know, fed by the staff and things like that. Um, they were really enjoying life and doing things. And, and many of them, um, James Sisnett uh, in Barbados was the very first um, supercentenarian that I met. Uh, I came on his 111th birthday and um, the nurses at the nursing home were saying like, oh yeah, he proposes to us like every other day, pinches our bottoms, um, you know, is really quite the ladies' man. Yeah, 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 and age is just a number for them. And then. <laughs> Absolutely. So what are maybe like some of the, I don't know, fightings that you found or like what, what, what make these uh, people super, super centenarians? Well, at the time, um, 
that I got interested in this, uh, near Barzilai and Tom Pearls had already um, pretty much discovered that a loss of function mutation in both men and women, but in different areas uh, of the genome, uh, provided many of them with low growth hormone or IGF-1 levels. And in fact, almost all the supers I met were what I would call very short. Um, so, you know, in the four and a half to five foot range for women and five to five and a half for men, uh, and not just, you know, they shrank as they age, so to speak. Um, but, you know, when I talked to them about, you know, how tall they were when they were younger, it was always, you know, like five, two or five, one, et cetera. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, they were diminutive and, um, uh, this kind of ties into what we're going to talk about today and how um, mutant mice that are, that are uh, dwarfs and, and uh, even uh, Laurent syndrome, human dwarfs, um, you know, have a huge advantage when it comes to cancer protection, Alzheimer's and uh, diabetes. Yeah, like uh, even, even like other species like uh, smaller dogs tend to live longer <laughs> and uh, yes. other other smaller life forms are Absolutely also correct. Li living longer because part of it has to do with the the ones that you mentioned like lower lower IG1 and uh, lower growth hormone but also like they have a, like just generally a lower metabolic rate that they don't have to consume that many calories to survive <laughs> and therefore the body just uh, maintains itself for longer so to say yep uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, maybe let's switch over to then uh, transitioning over to talking about your book, upcoming book that talks about the same same pathways that uh, regulate uh, health and uh, longevity. So yeah, why don't you I don't know start talking about like what's the title of the book and uh, what's it what's it talks about? So uh, I named the book after the focus um, the mTOR protein complex which you and I both refer to uh, as the switch. Um, so the book title is The Switch, and um, it's really meant to not only educate uh, people about this pathway and the balance between mTOR and autophagy, what, what these complexes do, uh, how they're both uh, detrimental and protective, uh, but also to short, sort of focus on the real-life examples. Um, lots of animal models, uh, but also current populations in the world that follow what I would say are not traditionally Western diets, uh, either for religious reasons uh, or for, um, um, let's say, lack of uh, the conveniences of grocery stores and fast food at every corner where they live. And, and therefore, um, they're, they're much closer to the original evolved diet um, that humans had and avoid the so-called diseases of civilization. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh... You mentioned mTOR, which is uh, one of the main kind of nutrient switches in the body. And the main kind of role of mTOR is to uh, promote growth and uh, cell replication and uh, muscle maintenance. So uh, how, how can 
in what ways can controlling mTOR be beneficial for uh, longevity? Sure. I, I, I like to step back and take like a 30,000 foot view of this. Um, when bacteria were evolving, um, you know, nature doesn't always provide food resources on a constant basis. So the cells that learn to adapt to scarcity um, survived. And as it turns out, all the rest of life, both plants and humans, are evolved from those that survived. And we all carry with us a mechanism that found its way in, in bacteria called TOR. And what this did was it allowed the cell to hunger down during um, periods of deprivation uh, when it couldn't find the nutrients that it needed to keep dividing and making more cells and making proteins. And it turned on a process called autophagy that essentially breaks down uh, selectively misfolded proteins and dysfunctional organelles within the cell to recycle those proteins into basic amino acids that the cell can then reuse. So it was a way of providing minimal amounts of uh, protein and amino acids to the cell so that it could keep functioning when nature wasn't providing it with a healthy amount. And um, so this, this process, which we inherited, now has not only the function of helping us through uh, hunger, um, periods of deprivation, of starvation, of the feast and famine. And, you know, this was necessary throughout 99% of human history. Um, but it also uh, was adapted as part of the immune system. So as you know, uh, autophagy can take out bacteria and viruses from the intercellular area and get rid of them. So it's part of a very basic immune system from bacteria to us. Um, and one of the things that concerns me with the modern diet and keeping mTOR turned on all the time uh, and autophagy uh, very low all the time is that we're no longer getting rid of harmful bacteria and viruses that enter into the cell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's so that's so true. And uh, autophagy is almost like a very kind of the central component to the uh, longevity benefits that you see from calorie restriction, for example, that uh, in in some studies where they genetically block the expression of autophagy, whether that be in mice or yeast, then those um, those uh, animals, they're not going to live longer despite being under calorie restriction. Whereas if they have autophagy, you know, activated normally, then they do see these um, benefits for, in terms of a life extension. So it's almost like the the autophagy process is like very important in just keeping the body, like you said, in this uh, kind of balanced state of uh, eliminating all the junk, uh, while at the same time also kind of stimulating these other uh, processes that help the organism to kind of live longer, or it's kind of it's essentially Autophagy is almost like this starvation response that tells the body that you need to kind of endure for a longer and you need to kind of hunker down, like you said, and uh, kind of go try to become more resourceful with uh, the resources that it does have and recycle them. Right. When um, 
uh, back in around 2013, uh, my roommate uh, wanted to go on to a ketogenic diet. And so I decided to support that and to go on a ketogenic diet as well. At the time, we were both practicing vegetarians. So we had mostly vegetable me uh, meals, but we did include dairy. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, uh, it was pretty easy to incorporate uh, more dairy, uh, dairy fats especially, and um, um, coconut oil and that sort of thing to increase our, um, our uh, uh, fat intake to about 65 to 70% of our diet. Um, but I decided reading all the papers that I could find on the ketogenic diet that um, I really wanted to take a deep dive into all the research that had been done in calorie restriction, in protein restriction, in fasting, both uh, long-term and intermittent, and to see, are these separate um, pathways that if you did all of them at once, you know, you would be additive, or are they the same pathway and you would simply be um, uh, turning on the same mechanism if you tried to incorporate more of these things at once? And so I read a lot of Steve and Spindler's uh, papers. He's a professor, as you know, at uh, UC Riverside, now, now retired, but he ran a lot of calorie restriction studies on mice and one of the papers that just absolutely convinced me that this mTOR autophagy pathway was critical to life extension was the one you were talking about that, um, that showed that even if you calorie restricted them but gave a drug that blocked autophagy, you didn't get any benefit. Mm. And, and I thought, you know, um, when you look at the genetics of what happens, um, during calorie restriction, it's thousands of genes change, which of course makes sense because you're switching uh, fuel, so to speak. So it's sort of like having a car that runs on both gasoline exclusively and electricity exclusively. And so when you do this switch over from one to the other, a whole lot of things have to also happen. Um, you know, you have to start filling the tank with gas, you have to start, you know, uh, bringing in a certain amount of oxygen for that, et cetera. If you switch the electricity, it's a bunch of different things that have to be done. So the body was um, switching gears uh, and upregulating some genes and downregulating others um, to the tune of thousands of genes. And so my bioinformatician friends would say, oh my God, aging is so complex, we're never going to get a handle on what we actually need to do. Mm -hmm. And after reading these papers, it was about 2,000 papers that I read in 2013 on calorie restriction, fasting, and the ketogenic diet. Um, I went back to them and said, look, um, I think that 99% of these genes are re related to this one metabolic pathway that controls mTOR and determines whether or not we're going to be in a growth anabolic state or a uh, repair catabolic state. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I remember one of them in particular just saying like, absolutely not. It's too, it's far too simple an answer. Uh, and this is a really complex field. And so for several years, I was sending him papers 
about um, autophagy and how it was linked to all of these health benefits and also how almost every genetic um, programming change, whether it was these loss of function mutations or things like DAF16 and DAF2 and uh, 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 all these uh, pharmaceuticals like rapamycin and metformin, but, but also um, lots of um, uh, nutraceutical compounds, uh, all having the same effects, anti-tumorgenic, um, uh, anti-inflammatory, et cetera, they all worked on these same pathways. And finally, he wrote back and said, you've convinced me. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that's quite funny because uh, you know although it may, it's it's true that it's very complex and it's not like uh, that uh, one size fits all, so all solution that autophagy is always good and so on. But it is simple in a sense that uh, when you look at what is one of the few known ways of prolonging lifespan, then it the consensus is that it's calorie restriction and uh, kind of eating slightly fewer calories. But like we mentioned already. If you look at why does calorie, re calorie restriction work, then it is because of the expression of these pathways and these genes, uh, autophagy being one of them. But um, you don't necessarily have to, be, you know, be uh, calorie restriction. is just like a, a means to an end, so to say. That's right. uh, and you can you can also uh, achieve that end with other practices, uh, such as like fasting and exercise and uh, sleep, even and uh, those things. So you you don't necessarily have to like. Uh, restrict your calories uh, in order to achieve those same benefits. I completely agree. One of the things I like about the work you've done is to show that, um, so both of these processes, uh, mTOR and uh, autophagy, are what's called um, constitutive, which means that they're constantly being transcribed, but the level at which they're being transcribed varies greatly from very, very low to medium levels to very, very high levels. And in this case, mTOR and autophagy are almost always on opposing ends of a balance or a seesaw, if you wanna look at it that way. And I talk about the switch as not being just off and on, but it's more like a dimmer switch where as you turn up brightness, you know, darkness goes down mm -hmm. and, you know, the reverse. So if you turn up the mTOR complex, so it's being transcribed and, and uh, making lots of proteins, you find that, that autophagy goes way down. Mm -hmm. And what you've done um, is to show that it's sort of a bell curve where too little of either of them is very detrimental. In the case of too little mTOR, um, you'll quit making stem cells, You'll quit replacing um, essentially organ cells and body parts in your immune system as well as muscle. Uh, and if you have too little autophagy, then you'll get a buildup inside all of your cells of misfolded proteins and um, dysfunctional mitochondria. Mm -hmm. But on the other extreme of the bell curve, uh, you also have, if mTOR is too high, you get a high propensity to tumors. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a dual function in the sense that the body's trying or those cells are trying to make many more duplicates of themselves, 
but you also aren't repairing the mitochondria, which are producing lots of free radicals and damaging not only their own uh, DNA, but also the cell's nuclear DNA. And so you end up with two things going wrong when you have high mTOR. And if you have really high autophagy, um, you, you can end up with just cell death. Mm -hmm. um, it rids the cell of too many mitochondria. You have a lack of ATP and that triggers apoptosis. So the cell kills itself basically. Um, so there really is a sweet spot. And um, one of the things I've been really interested in, and I spent about nine months doing research on what are the papers in paleo biology showing what's the, uh, what's the um, pathway look like in uh, hunter-gatherer people. And that really supported this idea that on a normal daily basis, um, people were turning on autophagy overnight as their glycogen stores got uh, depleted. Um, they weren't waking up in the morning and having, you know, uh, coffee with milk in it or cereal with, with milk, yeah. um, you know, high carbohydrates and protein, and then stopping their fast. So, um, um, you know, I, I think that this idea that you have to understand these principles and realize that it's a, it's, it is kind of a fine balance and that you have to work to maintain this balance is really important. Yeah, I totally agree. And like in, in the space, like you see these very uh, almost like binary oppositions in terms of uh, looking at, yeah, like they, they find, the studies find some association between overexpression of mTOR and overexpression of IGF-1 with um, cancer and accelerated aging, but it's also they take it out of context and they don't really uh, look at what are the benefits of mTOR actually. And one of them being like, uh, you know, maintaining muscle mass, maintaining stem cell functioning and so on. So if you're constantly suppressing mTOR too much by taking these pharmaceuticals or even, even fasting too much too often, then you're never going to actually build up or rebuild your body. So you're essentially going to just catabolize away. And that can actually also just accelerate aging. So you, you have to find this kind of a balance between getting the benefits of both. And uh, yeah, like in my opinion, some form of uh, intermittent fasting and, you know, managing your nutrient intake and timing it is, is, is the way to go because uh, you, can't, you can't really, uh, you know, hack it that easily compared to like some other pathways. Well, um, I do think that there are, you know, these populations that I talk about in the book, uh, Okinawans, the Loma Linda vegans, Mount Athos monks, you look at them compared to the people um, who live in the same countries but follow completely different diets than they do. Mm -hmm. um, so the Mount Athos monks are Greek Orthodox and um, they do this calorie restricted type fasting 150 days a year. Yeah. Um, you know, so uh, they're going through and they, you know, they do manual labor at the, at the monasteries, et cetera. So, you know, they're going through their glycogen stores. They're entering into autophagy every day. And what you see in groups like this and the Loma Linda vegans, and of course the Okinawans that still practice the traditional diet um, is that they have very reduced levels of cancer, heart disease, 
diabetes, and Alzheimer's compared to the normal population in these very same countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And, you know, the, the standard Western diet or the standard modern diet is, is yeah, pretty horrible because it's uh, high in carbohydrates, high in fats, <laughs> high, in, high in processed foods, and uh, essentially that stimulates the mTOR pathway uh, a lot. And it's also going to, you know, the idea of having small snacks and frequent meals throughout the entire day, that's also elevating mTOR and keeping it, keeping it higher, uh, you know, constantly. So in my opinion, and in my, based on my understanding, is that it's not even, you know, the food quality matters and food quality affects autophagy and mTOR uh, and the macronutrients themselves as well. But the timing of how frequently you eat is actually the most important part in terms of the mTOR stimulation and uh, the, the benefits of autophagy as well, because you, you activate the most autophagy when you're fasting. And even if you're yeah. eating like a calorie-restricted diet, if you're still eating six meals a day, but you're doing it in a calorie-restricted manner, then you're not really fully optimizing or you're not really fully gaining the benefits of autophagy. Whereas if you were to you know, skip, skip more meals, you would see a greater effect and you would also see... Uh, I would say that you would you would see a better result in terms of the final outcome and uh, longevity. I completely agree, and uh, you know I have uh, I have friends that practice all kinds of diets uh, for various reasons. Um, so I have numerous vegan friends, and uh, you seriously find people in this category that are consuming like um, chips crackers, breads, and soda. And you ask them, you know, how do you, how do you suppose that this is somehow healthy? And they say, well, I'm eating a hundred percent vegan diet. Like, right. You know, uh, I, I've read that veganism, you know, whole plants and that sort of thing is like great. And even the fructose in my, you know, soda comes from corn so that, you know, that's vegan and it, and it must be healthy. And um, so the, an, another purpose of this switch book is to also explore this area of what's wrong with paleo, what's wrong with veganism, what's wrong with ketogenic diets, because if you don't know about the switch and you don't know this balance that you're supposed to be keeping with mTOR and autophagy, it's really easy to screw up any good diet yeah. and make it detrimental. Yeah, exactly. That, I totally agree. And, you know, um, you know, part of the reason why uh, vegan diets tend to be like, you know, it's the vegan diets tend to have like a lower mTOR signaling because you're cutting out uh, animal protein, which is a, which is a quite a large kind of stimulator of the mTOR pathway. And right. That's that's why you some people may see like a benefit of going to a, like a completely plant based diet, and and in some aspects you can also get away with a, a bit of a higher eating frequency on a vegan diet because you have less animal protein in that diet. Uh, but if you were to kind of uh, juxtapose it next to a paleo diet that inc- incorporates animal protein, but you combine it with intermittent fasting and time restricted eating, then you would see the same results because uh, your uh, experiencing more autophagy during the fast state and that kind of balances it balances out the IGF-1 and the mTOR signaling so you, you can be as healthy on any diet uh, it just depends on the the scale so to say of uh, how 
in what direction your body is heading uh, on a daily basis and uh, how much of mTOR and how much of autophagy uh, are you getting throughout the entire daily period? That's right. And, and, and I'm, I'm a big fan of the glycemic index. Um, I, I didn't know anything about that. I, uh, you know, when I was uh, uh, reaching adulthood, um, I think it was discovered or came about uh, from work done in Australia and really didn't um, sort of become a thing until about the 1990s. Um, and, um, and when I discovered it, um, you know, for myself, it really changed uh, my health for, for, the, uh, for the good uh, because I was consuming as a, uh, as a vegetarian, I was consuming back then uh, tons of rice and tons of bread. And, um, you know, I was having sort of, as you were describing, the worst of all worlds, a high fat diet with a lot of uh, very refined flour type carbohydrates. And so I had high blood sugar plus fat. And as we both know, um, if you're the, the body evolved not to be in a circumstance where you had um, glucose available all the time. In nature, it's pretty rare. So, you know, before um, we industrialized food in the late 1800s, um, most carbohydrates took a while to digest. Um, you know, they didn't raise blood sugar uh, all that much. And therefore, it was pretty safe to eat. And, and of course, um, there wasn't so much available that um, you know, most people would just snack all day long on food. Um, so I remember even my my great grandparents, you know, talking about um, you know they were farmers and that and that um, you know their big meal of the day would they would basically not have breakfast, have a big meal in the middle of the day because that was when they were working, and then at the end of the day, um, which for them was about five o'clock or so. Um, they'd have a smaller meal. And, you know, they, did, they just never thought about snacking during the day. And they didn't have convenience foods that you carry around in your pocket or, you know, soft drinks that you just open and drink all day long as well. So, it, you know, up until fairly recently, these things didn't exist in the human diet. And I think it's one of the major reasons why we see this huge escalation in these metabolic uh, problems from diabetes, heart disease, uh, cancer, uh, Alzheimer's, etc. Um, Alzheimer's actually being termed by a lot of doctors as type 3 diabetes. Um, and if you go back in the literature, you can find lots of um, scientists and, and doctors in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, who were being sent out to um, investigate these uh, uh, what might have been called primitive or, or non-westernized populations. So above the Arctic Circle uh, with the Inuits and, and Eskimos in the uh, 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 northeast of um, Canada. And the further you got away from quote-unquote civilization, which basically meant trading and shipping, um, and the more natural the diet was in terms of like normal hunter-gatherer type of, of, um, of practices, 
the healthier the people were. And, you know, there's lots of reports where they basically said we couldn't find any cardiovascular disease in any of the population that we studied. Or, you know, uh, in 30 years of practicing medicine in Alaska, they hadn't found, uh, you know, a single case of someone dying from cancer. Um, but of course, when civilization brought flowers and sugars primarily um, to trade with these people, um, that's when their health like took a dive. And you see this like with the Pima Indians that um, the U.S. government asked if uh, settlers could cross their land. And they knew that the settlers would hunt game and wipe out all the deer and rabbits and everything that they had. So they said, you know, we'll, we'll supply you with all the flour and, and sugar and coffee that you want. And so um, from like the mid 1800s on, it devastated the Pima Indians. And, and they had some of the worst um, um, diabetes in the population uh, in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, it, it tends to be that uh, the combination of uh, carbs and fats um, creates, it it's kind of sets the stage for a metabolic syndrome and uh, predisposes the person to become like insulin resistant because uh, the body can only like function well by using one or the other. Like you can be healthy eating a low-fat, high-carb diet or a low-carb, high-fat diet. Uh, but if you combine them together, then uh, that's where the things start to go uh, wrong. And that's where you develop like insulin resistance. And uh, usually the, com- the, the, uh, by combining these two foods, you also create this like hyper, hyper-palatable situation where you would uh, become more eager to eat as well. And that leads to just over-consuming calories and you're, yeah. getting, you're getting sick from just, from just that and uh, eating, eating too many calories. Like you can get away with it by practicing calorie restriction because there are some people who, you know, eat, uh, like, let's say like eating only donuts or eating like a Twinkie diet where they're still losing weight because of calorie restriction and they're because of the calorie restriction they see the uh, improvement in their health markers as well to a certain extent uh, but if you were to do it in a calorie surplus then you definitely wouldn't see those effects and you would see the opposite that you would uh, become sicker faster right right uh, what, 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 what do you think about uh, then uh, animal protein and meat you know that, that's very controversial topic in terms of life lifespan that uh, it it's said to be accelerating aging and giving a cancer and so on. So what do you think about that? Well, so I like to, at least in humans, look at our evolutionary history and uh, what we find in hunter-gatherer populations or groups around the world. And the one thing I haven't been able to find, and I would love to hear about it if someone knows about it, is a group of people that survive on um, a very high calorie intake of meats or dairy uh, and not, are not in a ketogenic diet, but just a, you know, eat a lot of, eat a lot of meat. And um, because you're, as you know, your liver will make glucose from protein if you have an excess amount of protein. Right. Um, so you're not necessarily, um, glucose deprived or have glycogen um, deprivation uh, in your muscles and liver, et cetera, which is what would impede mTOR and turn up autophagy. Uh, uh, you can overconsume proteins and still have 
uh, high glucogen stores. Um, so I'd like to see a population that actually lives long and doesn't have cancer and, and all of these things. But what you typically find is that high meat eaters also eat a lot of junk. They, you right. know, um, especially in the West, um, the people who score highest for animal protein um, consumption with dairy and, and meat also tend to eat really high carbohydrates and fat. Yeah. So it's, it, it is this sort of tsunami of, of all the worst elements with no um, restrictions, no, no protein restrictions, no calorie restrictions, nothing to turn on the beneficial side. And if you have, um, as I was getting at earlier, um, we evolved not to have uh, glucose very handy. And therefore, whenever it's in the environment, our body is evolved to save it and to um, store as much as we can and then burn what more it gets and knowing that, well, this is going to run out really soon and then we'll be back to burning fat. But if you're in a modern situation where you constantly have your glycogen stores full and you're never through exercise or fasting depleting them, then what you see is every bit of fat that goes in is, and is consumed is just held back for storage. Mm -hmm. And this process of consuming fats is never turned on. And that's the thing I love about the ketogenic diet is that you can retrain your body to quickly move from um, glucose burning to fat burning. And the more frequently you train your body to do that, then the more it can switch over even at night um, very quickly to just consuming fat. So when I wake up you know, uh, in the morning these days, I, I could go the entire day, not think about food, miss a meal, and I'm never hungry because my body just automatically switches over to fat burning. And it basically doesn't have to bother me with, oh, we're hungry, why don't you do something about it? Mm -hmm. But if you're constantly giving your body carbs and it doesn't really expect to ever have to turn on fat burning, then when you run out of carbs, it, instead of just switching over, it basically says, oh, hey, give me some more carbs. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's true. And a lot of the, uh these uh, longevity pathways are uh, regulated by ketosis and uh, you know burning your own body fat kind of yes. go, go, going through the switch of uh, uh, stop alter altering from uh, glycogen and glucose into ketones and fats so yeah like on a keto, keto diet you can expect to gain some of the benefits of these autophagy and these other longevity pathways kind of faster because you're not really giving your body this overabundance of uh, carbs and uh, glycogen and you're keeping yourself in this like more closer to this switch, if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. Um, but, but again, because there's a lot of books on the ketogenic diet and there's a few books about autophagy, um, what I want to emphasize is you don't go on these diets and just do one thing. You don't just suppress mTOR and you don't just do a ketogenic diet because you're going to find that your immune system's going to uh, become depleted uh, because you're not reproducing stem cells. Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to lose muscle mass. Um, but when you lose muscle mass, you know, you think, oh, well, my arms are a little smaller. But think about your heart muscle. You know, you don't want 
your brain neurons not being um, replaced, you don't want your uh, cardiomyocytes to be turned down and not replacing heart muscle. Um, you don't want your cartilage um, chondrocytes to be turned down and not producing cartilage. Uh, but if you stay on a ketogenic diet or a autophagy-inducing diet permanently, that's like saying, gee, fasting is really healthy. I read about it. I'm going to fast every day of my life now. Mm-hmm. And I'm, not, I'm just not going to eat anything. I mean, nobody would think that that's right. But, but people somehow think that um, taking lots of drugs that turn on autophagy and inhibit mTOR are okay. Hmm. But it's not. It's like saying I'm going to fast every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You have to find this, you have to find a balance of uh, still getting the beneficial aspect of mTOR and uh, growing in anabolism, uh, but you, you and you, you like being on this very strict keto diet, like the therapeutic uh, diet that is used for epilepsy, that is also lowing lowing carbs as well as lowing protein. Then that can be uh, that can be problematic in terms of maintaining muscle mass, especially if you're like already healthy and you don't have like a reason to be in this very strict ketosis. But most people can still. Uh, experience sufficient amounts of anabolism and mTOR stimulation on a like a semi ketogenic diet that in, either inc- incorporates a bit of higher carbs or more protein, so to say that you are not eating only like ten percent protein or something very little. You're, you can still um, gain some of the benefits of ana- anabolism uh, by eating slightly more protein without necessarily kicking yourself out of ketosis for uh, too long. Like eating too much protein, yeah, creates uh, glucose and uh, that can kick you out of ketosis in the short term but you will also be able to swap back and forth faster so to say and there are many ways there are many ways of going about it like you can yeah you can do um you can do days where you're not eating keto you're eating like high carb which is the cyclical keto diet and you can also do like some targeted ketogenic diets where you're consuming some carbs around exercise and yeah there are many ways of going about it and but i but i prefer like doing it in this way of being like flexible of uh, still teaching your body to burn uh, both fuel sources at different times, and you know you you do you do burn those carbs every once in a while, uh, but you you can structure them in a way, or you can time them in a way that is not going to inherently make you lose the beneficial aspects of ketosis and keto adaptation. So you can still swap back and forth uh, faster. Totally agree, and, and um, uh, it, it was probably one of the more difficult parts of the book to write, and my co-author, um, Kristen Loberge, really helped with this. The, the chapter that deals with um, food planning, meal planning, and which diets to follow, it's, it's basically uh, uh, boils down to pick something. Right. Um, <laughs> pick, you know, pick the you know, uh, low fish, high vegetable diets of the Okinawans or the total uh, vegan diets of the Loma Lindas or the Mount Athos monks and follow that, but only do it for eight out of every 10 periods. Now the periods can be days or weeks or months, um, but you know, you need to, you need to go through regular cycles where you turn mTOR back up because if you, again, thinking about evolution, um, if humans were evolving in uh, uh, Northern Europe, which I think both of our ancestors probably did, then they went through 20,000 years of ice age. You know, so 
when were the, when were they getting these abundant uh, carbohydrates? Well, it was only during the, the the summer months and you know the July, August, September probably before it got brutally cold, and they had a small amount of time to regain their muscle strength, to put on weight for the winter, and to you know be able to hunker down during the hard parts of of uh, the rest of the year, and and I think. We have to remember this, that the body evolved to take advantage of these nutrients and to rebuild everything. And so you can't live on the diet alone. You need to turn mTOR on. And I think there's lots of ways to do it. You can do it pharmacologically. You can do it, you know, take branch chain amino acids like bodybuilders. Um, and I, like you, uh, I'm on a four hour a day feeding window. So between 11 o'clock and 3 p.m., I have my one meal of the day. And, you know, I put into that period, and it's, it's generally about an hour I stop work in the laboratory or the clinical trial or whatever I'm doing, and I'll take off about an hour and make and, and eat some food. It's largely um, high-fiber, low-glycemic vegetables, about one and a half to two pounds a day. And, um, and then depending on whether I'm in the mTOR mode or the ketogenic mode or the just pure vegan mode, I may also have some fish or I may have some dairy. Um, you know, I may take some branch chain amino acids. Um, and that way, uh, there's only a small variability day by day as to whether I'm activating mTOR or I'm activating autophagy mm. yeah like I, I i like to think of it or it also depends on the particular goal and the situation so for example if someone is um, exercising more then their demand for mTOR would be also higher because they they need the mTOR to repair and adapt from the exercise whereas someone who is sedentary then their requirement for mTOR is uh, lower and in that case they would benefit from staying more on the autophagy side so the way uh, the, yeah, like like you said, like on, on most days, you're kind of maintaining this uh, balance towards more autophagy, but uh, on other days, you need the mTOR to stimulate as well. And how frequently you need to stimulate mTOR depends on yeah your level of uh, phys physical activity, your goals, and also like yeah like what did you do yesterday, and what are you gonna plan to do uh, tomorrow, so to say. That if you've been if you've been eating low carb uh, for quite a long time now then uh, it may be a good idea to slightly either increase the protein or to increase the carbohydrate in order to just uh, raise the mTOR signaling as well. So it's a, it's a, it's a constant balance in terms of yeah. finding, f figuring out uh, what state of your body is in this particular moment and uh, what kind of a state would you like to be in the you know, next moment. Well, what we find in America and the UK in particular is that a growing number of the population are obese. And um, if they're following the diets that we are now calling SAD, you know, the standard American diet, um, then uh, they're going to have some period of time, maybe five years or a decade or two or three decades in which they've kept their autophagy off. So for, so for them, and, and, in some regards, I wrote the book mostly for like the average person who's been following a Western diet. 
and in, in particularly the SAD diet, um, to help them figure out a way to overcome this, to learn how to fat burn, and to occasionally go on to an actual fast, you know, whether it's a two-day to begin with or a three-day or, or longer, uh, depending on their fat reserves and, you know, getting their BMI down to a reasonable level. I'm a, um, I'm a big fan of body spec, um, the DEXA scans um, that uh, are essentially low power x-rays that can tell you where your muscle and body fat are in your body. And uh, when I ran mine the first time, um, I was really surprised because I've been relatively um, like in the low 20s BMI, but I had, um, I think, 23 or 24% body fat in my visceral, around my organs. Uh, so my VAT was way higher than I thought it would be. Um, so I worked out and um, uh, fasted uh, from Friday afternoon. So I ate a, fri a, a Friday meal, and then I wouldn't have another meal until my lunch on um, Monday. Mm -hmm. And so it works out to being roughly a three-day fast. And, um, and I lost all of that adipose tissue, you know, uh, VAT, and got down to the same BMI uh, in my central core that I was in the rest of my body. Mm. And, uh, and because I was working out, I also gained about seven pounds of muscle. Wow. So, you know, having these, this kind of feedback um, where you get a body spec, for example, um, uh, view of, of your muscle and, and, uh, and fat, I think is really helpful uh, to, to getting to your ideal weight and, um, and learning to strike this balance of, of the mTOR and autophagy, because it's going to be, it's going to be really hard if you're carrying around, um, you know, the, the average BMI of an obese American or, or uh, uh, European um, to, to get healthy uh, if you're not going to also lose weight. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, manipulating uh, whether you're fat burning or not is, is the key to that. Um, one of my scientist friends um, who had been trying to lose weight for about a year uh, and said, you know, I don't know what's wrong, maybe it's just my metabolism, uh, he read my book and um, said, you know, I wonder if it's the dairy I have in my coffee in the morning. That's the only time I have dairy, but I have it every day in my coffee. And so he stopped putting dairy in and he said, within a week or two, he was losing weight. And he said, you know, that little bit of leucine um, was it. Mm -hmm. You know, that was was stopping him, you know, because again, you need this glycogen um, stores to be depleted. And for a lot of people, that's only gonna happen by about like five, six, seven a.m. And if you immediately wake up and have a cup of coffee with, with uh, branch chain amino acid, i.e. leucine in it, which, which all by itself will stimulate mTOR, then you may have missed that one opportunity for autophagy and uh, fat consumption to, to have uh, cycled in. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, that's 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 the secret secret mistake a lot of people make that uh, these small things that still have like a pretty high anabolic response and dairy being uh, dairy being more anabolic than other foods compared to like things or you know MCT oil or vegetables or even like uh, meat for that matter like dairy is is much higher in IGF one than other foods. Yes, well, if you think about calves. Um, uh, nature provided for them to grow very rapidly so they could stay up with the herd. They, they don't really have a good way of protecting themselves. And unlike other mammals, uh, their mothers don't, um, you know, carry them around or, or otherwise have a pouch or something to, to keep them in. So uh, it turns out that cow's milk has four times the level of leucine and isoleucine as human breast milk. Mm-hmm. But humans have you know, a skewed human breast milk in favor of these artificial, um, basically cow-based um, uh, milk substitutes um, or breastfeeding substitutes. And now you're finding kids that are getting obese, you know, really, really early on. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's, it's probably tied to, um, you know, these far higher levels of mTOR activating uh, leucine that's in cow's milk. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and also just the, um, you know, the, uh, I don't know, pu- puddings or uh, these uh, uh, purees that uh, kids are fed, they're also high in carbs and fructose and those things, which uh, make it even worse. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Yeah, that's true. Uh, what are some of maybe, uh, let's say, we, we, you mentioned uh, quantifying and looking at the data what are maybe like some some biomarkers people people can pay attention to when it comes to uh, uh, both uh, the autophagy process as well as mTOR? Like, what kind of uh, danger signs would they pay attention to? That okay, I'm getting too much mTOR, or vice versa, I'm getting uh, too much autophagy. Uh, well, certainly, if you're suppressing mTOR all the time, and I've had a number of friends because you know I've, I've been uh, part of the anti-aging life extension culture now for numerous decades. I've had a number of friends who were uh, uh, in their 60s, 70s, and 80s who have listened to these different um, resources that talk about autophagy, and they're taking metformin uh, every day, long-term, or they're, um, they're really watching their calories and their in their intake of carbohydrates and eating more vegetables, uh, etc., and reducing the amount of meat. Um, and you know, they tell me like, "Oh, you know, James, I've been on metformin now for two years." And I said, "Like, uh, so what do you do to break that up?" And they said, "Like, well, what do you mean? Uh, well, have you noticed, you know, losing any muscle?" Oh, well, I'm getting older, so I, I just suppose I'm supposed to lose muscle. Yeah, I'm, you know, my, my skin on my arms is hanging, and, you know, I've definitely lost a lot of muscle over the last year or two. Right. Well, you know, this is, this is because you're keeping the break on mTOR 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, year in, year out, and that's not the way it's supposed to work. You have to replace these cells that are dying off. You have to replace the injured cells. And you need autophagy on sometimes, but you also need mTOR on sometimes.
Sorry, that was uh, Google talking to me. She must have thought I said something about them. <laughs> yeah, spyware. But yeah, you can carry on. Um, so um, I, I definitely am experiencing more people talking to me about muscle wasting. And I have a good friend whose immune system regularly um, crashes. Um, you know, they, they get very low white blood cell counts. And it's because the person is particularly um, concerned uh, with cancer, you know, the possibility of, of getting cancer. Um, and, and that's, of course, an incredibly scary pathology you don't want to have. But again, um, one way of keeping cancer at bay is also to have a strong immune system. And so if you suppress mTOR constantly under the belief that, um, you know, you don't want to give tumors uh, growth factors, um, you also end up with a very weak immune system. And now you're not going to have phagocytes and uh, uh, macrophages and things like that helping clear out um, dysfunctional cells and um, clearing your body of these potentially pre uh, tumorigenic cells. So again, um, this has become more and more of a concern among the people that know about uh, autophagy and mTOR. For the average person who doesn't know anything about it, uh, I can see where they would think nutrition information is really confusing. You hear constantly conflicting things about vegans saying that theirs is the healthiest and uh, paleo and carnivores saying that theirs is the healthiest. And the fact is, is that um, many of these will make you healthy for a little while, but if you're not reaching this constant balance between mTOR and autophagy being cycled off and on, then long-term, you're not going to get the benefits that you find in these Okinawans, Loma Linda vegans, monks, etc. And that's what that's what we know works because, you know, population-wise in these groups, they do way better than the average uh, Western diet-eating uh, American or European. So we really have to pay attention to these examples that are right in front of us of peoples who have much lower morbidity and mortality risk and what it is that they're doing that we should emulate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Like... I think, in my opinion, yeah, the most important uh, factor for a diet is the uh, eating frequency and uh, and uh, doing some form of time restricted eating and fasting, so to, so to say that you would still get the benefits of autophagy and still you're nourishing yourself with the adequate uh, nutrition and uh, how much you need to fast and uh, how frequently you need to do it depends on the kind of the, the the diet that you're eating. Some some diets require you to kind of balance more more of the mTOR with some uh, longer fasts, whereas others uh, require less of it and uh, depends on the per particular individual as well and uh, what's their health and what's what's their other like exercise routine and those things. Agreed. Uh, and before I started doing the ketogenic diet and and then started switching in and out of the ketogenic diet, uh, my body had basically unlearned how to burn fat. And so I was one of these people who had to have like popcorn or, or something at night 
um, because I'd get really hungry around nine o'clock. And so I'd have something like literally right before I went to bed. Um, and that's terrible. Um, and the best thing I've ever done, I think, for my health um, in, the, in the last four or five years is to switch to this um, time-restricted diet or intermittent fasting in which uh, you have a narrow window. And you, you don't have to go uh, to a four-hour window like, like Sim and I do um, right away. You can just start collapsing your window from, you know, 12 hours or, or you know, even 18 hours a day, like some people would have, um, down to, you know, uh, shorter and shorter. They, they found that, a, that even an eight-hour window of eating has, like, tremendous health uh, benefits. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Definitely. Like, uh, you, yeah, you start where you're at and you kind of constantly um, adjust the process as well because I would, I would imagine that even, even the eating window itself should fluctuate. Like you, never, you, you, you probably don't want to be eating only within one hour or within four hours for the rest of your life. You kind of want to change that up as well in some aspects, like maybe eating eight hours on some day and then on the other days you eat only within two hours and so on. So that's also like some of the... Uh, adjustments and adaptability right and and most of the groups that we've talked about and certainly you know this would have been true even of paleolithic man uh, is that you're allowed feasts um, so you know um, you uh, uh, have a friend that climbs up a tree and, and um, you know is able to smoke out the uh, bees and grab you know the whole honey hive uh, and everybody, you know, like makes themselves sick on honey uh, or, you know, uh, that you had an especially good berry collection and uh, or a really good hunting day. And you just brought down a big game animal and everybody's going to, you know, sort of pig out, so to speak. So um, th- this is this is what humans, you know, evolved to, to experience. Um, but, but we have to remember that we also evolved to experience famine mm-hmm. and periods where we had to really hunker down and make our food last a lot longer than, um, than those feast times. And that seems to be the trick that in almost any of these diets that I've read about scientifically, um, when you reduce calories, particularly proteins, um, you you end up with health benefits right right yeah uh so uh it's been great talking with you and we could definitely go into more detail with all these different pathways but we would need like another podcast for that uh so we'll start uh, wrapping things up uh, before i ask my last questions are like is there anything you would like to add or that we didn't talk about well i would love to talk to you again sometime about uh the ongoing uh clinical trial research we're doing um, we messaged each other a little bit and, um, you know, I'm, I'm really especially interested in NAD mm. and, um, the ways that, um, it works, uh, in the human body to protect particularly DNA, both mitochondrial and, and, uh, nuclear. And, um, the fact that we now know that it diminishes to almost nothing in elderly people, um, almost uh, undetectable levels in uh, uh, a typical 80-year-old 
Um, so I'm really interested in what raising these levels to youthful amounts will do on the long term. And so we've, we've done four or five short clinical trials on this. Um, I have more planned for 2020. We've been exploring Senolytics uh, following the work that the Mayo Clinic's done. So we did a year-long um, trial of giving disatinib and quercetin. Now I'd like to do one with disatinib and fisetin, uh, and also just a pure fisetin um, senolytic uh, study. Um, we're exploring rapamycin um, as a, um, uh, a way to induce mTOR, and we're now set up in our lab to look at gene expression and to actually measure both autophagy levels uh, and uh, mTOR uh, levels. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I'm really excited about uh, being able to do a lot more lab work now, and um, I, we're going to have a lot to report. Mm, yeah, definitely. Looking forward to it, and uh, we'll have to set it up uh, in the future. Uh, but yeah, where can people learn more about uh, you and your work, and where can they get uh, your new book? So the the book is out December thirty first. Um, it'll be in major bookstores. It's certainly on um, Barnes and Noble, uh, Books a Million, Amazon, etc. Um, you can pre order now. Um, the book will be shipping. Uh, out from the New Year's Eve, basically onward. Nice, nice. And um, I, I run a nonprofit medical research organization called Better Humans. Uh, it's one word, and uh, you can find it at uh, betterhumans.org. Uh, we have a little bit of information about our projects, and um, as our funding gets uh, larger, we'll hopefully be able to provide more and more information about our findings, not just publish them in scientific journals, which is what we're doing now, but also have information that's more readily understandable by the lay public and doctors. Awesome, that's good. We're gonna put all the links in the show notes. And uh, my last question is, uh, what's this one piece of advice or a habit you wish you adopted sooner? <laughs> uh, well, I think um, knowing about um, the glycemic index when I was maybe in my 20s would have helped me a lot. Um, and of course, you know, I envy people like you that started doing ketogenesis, you know, in high school uh, and, you know, uh, at your incredibly young age, uh, comparatively, um, you know, are um, exercising and uh, following, you know, this mTOR autophagy balanced uh, lifestyle, uh, you know, I think you're going to be um, uh, extremely healthy and long lived. Mm, yeah, well, I, I did have a good head start, but uh, we'll see how it goes <laughs> because it may turn out to be wrong. So who knows? Well, we have to we have to take our best informed uh, guesses and and go with it. But um, again, I think there's these huge populations of people who have been experimenting and showing us the path. And so that's that's the evidence that we have right now that we're on the right path.
Mm, yeah, that's yeah, I agree. And uh, we just have to keep on doing these great experiments like their like your lab definitely has uh, great opportunities to do this kind of research that anyone else isn't really doing. <laughs> well, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. All right, that's it for this episode of the Body Mind Empowerment Podcast. If you want to support us, then I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes and the other social media platforms. You can now order my new book, Metabolic Autophagy, that covers a lot of the same topics that we talked in here. It's a collection of certain lifestyle habits and practices that prioritize longevity as well as performance. To support this podcast, you can also become a Patreon and get exclusive video lectures from my biohacking bootcamp that covers circadian rhythms, intermittent fasting, autophagy, resistance training, biofeedback, and many more. But other than that, my name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.